Hello, Ash. Um, happy uh, Sunday after July 4th. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Carrie. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's another hot day. Um, but again, by the time we, we put this one out, we're always uh, a few episodes behind. So uh, I'm sure it'll even be hotter. But I hope you had a great, <sighs> great fourth. I did. Um, I uh, did. We did not watch fireworks or anything like that. We 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 we've been staying inside as much as possible because I don't know. It's like a sauna out there right now. Um, dew points are sitting in like the mid seventies, um, and um, it's like the moment I walk out the door, my glasses fog up, and it's like I feel like I'm breathing water. So we've been doing a lot of stuff inside, but um, had some uh, time with a uh, sister and her family. We played some cards, which was fun. Um, we, we have this card game called hand and foot. Um, so not poker, but, um, it's, a not really a, it's like a canasta kind of variation. Um, anyway, um, and we just barely won. Um, it was, it was very close, we, but we, but we actually pulled it out. Um, and so it was, a, it was a good, uh, restful, uh, week and, uh, but man, it has been super hot. How was your, uh, <laughs> how, how has your week gone? <laughs> yeah, ours was pretty chill. Uh, we just had the, like our daughter who's six just had the one day off and around that, uh, she's in a summer camp for Japanese. Uh, nice. so since she's half Japanese, we are, uh, doing our best to ensure that she learns it and we'll be, <laughs> we'll be taking her back to Japan, uh, for the first time since she was one years old. Uh, <gasps> Oh, thanks. wow. Yeah. Thanks to the pandemic. It's been a long time for us. Uh, last year, uh, last summer, I was still not allowed to go uh, being a non uh, passport holder. So uh, they could have gone, but they didn't want to go without me, which is <laughs> nice, I guess. Uh, so uh, we're we're going to go back. And so she's uh, every day going to this uh, school to learn Japanese, but they do it in lots of fun ways. Uh, she even gets swimming, swimming lessons and they oh, do wow. arts and crafts and it's all, uh, it's all really fun stuff. Oh, that sounds amazing. And given her age, she'll pick it up like, like second nature. <laughs> yeah, she did it last year and we were a little shocked by how fast she was absorbing things. Of course, <laughs> my, my wife and I really only speak Japanese at home. Uh, my daughter hears it constantly. She understands it. Uh, but I think even at her age, she thinks of Japanese as the thing my parents, the way my <laughs> parents talk at home. And so I think it, it's already uncool. I mean, it took her no time at all to realize, like, I get no social benefit from uh, <laughs> learning this language. So hopefully uh, her going back to Japan and, and seeing relatives and mm, friends and kids yeah. her age will will help her get a little more excited about the whole thing. Well, that sounds exciting. Yeah, that'll be yeah, hopefully, because I, I mean, I, I've I'm jealous of people who can speak multiple languages. My um, I did not pick it up in, in the early years. And even though I took Spanish um, in high school, um, I can say hello. My name is and that's about as far as it goes. Um, but um, the times I've been over in Europe and all, all these people who um, can speak multiple languages, not only that, but can fall back to English, uh, like in the, like in the Netherlands or, or like in Amsterdam and do it probably better than I can speak English have, it, it just always blows my mind. So, yeah, you, you and I have been to Germany together a number of times for developer conferences. And, uh, I think most years it felt like I was going once a year, uh, when I was with Adobe, uh, because we had such a big, uh, 
and I'm sure Creative Cloud still has a very big uh, developer audience there. And before the first time I went, I remember picking up Duolingo Mm, and just hitting that pretty hard thinking like I had never been to Germany at that point. And uh, this must have been like back in 2015, if I remember right, maybe 2016. It's been a while. (laughs) been a while uh, uh, but yeah i hit the duolingo pretty hard and then i got there and uh no one ever gave me a chance to even speak any german i must like just be like i must i don't know like look american or something but oh, no. i just realized pretty quickly that like okay great like i'm, I'm sure maybe somebody appreciates if you've tried but mm-hmm. the reality is you never get a chance to try so i was like all right fine um this is amazing that i don't have to learn German in order to make my way around not only Berlin, but I mean, been to Hamburg and Munich and Frankfurt mm-hmm. and uh, Mannheim. We went to Mannheim, yes, we which went is to like Mannheim. wherever that is. <laughs> so we ha- we've been to a lot of places uh, and I certainly have over the years uh, in Germany, but I, I don't take it for granted that yeah. uh, everybody there just speaks perfect English. And it's something of a it's just mind blowing to me. Yeah. Yeah, it always it, it does blow my mind. And I I, I still remember because um, I worked at a community college uh, many years ago um, and it was um, uh, there. There were a lot of uh, 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 Spanish speakers around and the uh, s- seamless switching between English and Spanish and back again and, and all, all the bouncing back and forth is like, yep, my my brain was not uh, it, able to keep up, but it it. it the brain is an amazing thing. <laughs> and so is language. <laughs> it is really cool. Like if you if you take it to like, um, for example, if you take it back to something like Star Wars, for example, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a kid, I, I remember being uh, at least like an American kid growing up in Texas, very sheltered from uh, a lot of like other languages and stuff in, in that era. Yeah. And so like you'd look at something like Han Solo and Chewbacca talking back and forth. They each speak their own language. But they both seem to understand each other. And, you know, at some point I, I, I started to be like, wait, I'm smart. I, I questioned the setup. <laughs> uh, and, and so at some point, the reality is, of course, you're not that smart because it turns out that that's a thing that you can do. There's like yes. levels of like for people who don't have that. They don't grow up surrounded by a, a large mix of primary cultures. Well, at first you just kind of take it for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, they understand each other. And it's like, wait, they shouldn't be able to understand each other. And it's like, oh, wait, no, I've had lots of conversations in my life where I'm speaking one language and the other person is speaking another language and we can still converse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 the 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 ability of uh, of the brain to do that, um, especially if you've grown up in an environments where you've got multiple languages. Um, is is always astonishing to me. So I, I I'm very 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 jealous of people who can who can do that. Yeah, I'm hoping that that our daughter grows up appreciating it. Uh, so far, so good. They've been in the in the kitchen uh, right now. Actually, they bought this little. Uh, my my wife and my daughter bought this little uh, package at the local Japanese store that it's it's like a candy set, but it's a make your own. And it gives you all of the components to make what looks like a Japanese bento box. It has like rice balls. It has like fried chicken. Uh, it has, jeez, uh, what else? Uh, like noodles. Yeah, all these sort of things, but you're making them out of sugar. <laughs> so they were in there doing that experiment, which, you know, and I'm like, that looks that and it was 
surprisingly cool. Like I walked in not knowing what they were doing and I was like, wait, are you making a tiny bento? And I could like name all of the things that they were, they were, they were making. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) So as we, uh, kind of get a little further into AI land, um, you and I've been kind of talking about this a lot because it's what everybody talks about right now. And rightfully so it's just super freaking cool. Uh, we, I think, think question mark on our last episode talked about uh music uh machine learning and music and you introduced me to that whole world which i haven't really been playing with at all uh so we had gone through on a previous episode it was either the last one or the one before and gone through like a whole list of stuff and i think at the time uh you know there were all these different tools out there and they still continue to exist I've actually tried playing with a few uh, in the context of work when it comes to coming up with some background music for, you know, like a little a little video or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all really interesting space. I think there was one thing on the list you had mentioned, yes. uh, something around Google that you didn't have access to at the time or hadn't been opened up or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds like you have since then gotten access and have started yeah. playing around with it. Yes. So um, this was um, the Google's AI test kitchen um, and they have a music LM, um, which unlike um, so uh, unlike the ones that we talked about in the previous one, where it's either the tool is generating some MIDI or it's um, selecting from some um, uh, pre-recorded patterns and then putting them together. This tool is doing essentially the same thing that uh, a Dolly or um, Firefly um, is doing to images, where it is synthesizing the audio um, from scratch. So it's not MIDI. It's not patterns put together. It's generating an audio file based upon a description. And so um, the if you go to um, the site, it's aitestkitchen.withgoogle.com, which is an interesting domain. Um, we can put it in the show notes. Um, you can register your interest there. But is, is the last episode uh, when we talked about this, I didn't have access and I had just signed up for it. And it dawned on me, I should go check my email because maybe I got access and I had. Um, and I was able to log into it and, and I've been playing around with it a little bit. Um, it's really interesting. Um, it's not going to solve everyone's needs right off the bat because it does have some limitations. Um, for example, it's only generating about 20 seconds of a clip. Um, so you're realistically going to get a musical idea out of it rather than an entire track Um, or maybe an intro, like say you wanted like a 15 second intro, maybe you could do something with that. Uh, But longer than that, it's not, it it doesn't generate anything more than that. Um, So it's limited in that regard. It also, um, it generates two tracks, which I think they, so far they've been corresponding roughly to like kind of versions, like, uh, like you might get four images out of Dolly or Firefly. Um, you, you get two tracks and you can kind of choose which one you like better. And there's actually a trophy that you can award to the one that you like the best to kind of help improve the the model, which is kind of fun. Um, but an, in all other respects, it acts very much like a Dolly or a chat GPT would. So you give it a prompt um, and you can ask it all sorts of things. Um, some of the, uh, the sample prompts that it has, um, I'll just read off a couple. 
relaxing jazz. And that's just the prompt. Um, but it can also get more specific. So a jazzy piece with a smooth saxophone solo. The sound is both sophisticated and playful with a slow tempo. Or meditative song, calming and soothing with flutes and guitars. The music is slow with a focus on creating a sense of peace and tranquility. So you're describing the music, basically. Um, and I've had varied success with what it, how, how well it understands um, like at certain turns of phrase and how it maps to the musical output. Um, so, uh, but it does say more detailed prompts, the better your end result. So I used it to generate a few, um, interesting ones, um, just to give it a play through. Um, and so I, I, I thought I would share a couple of those. <laughs> um, so the, this first one, um, that I did, um, uh, is, um, Basically, I asked it for an epic orchestral uh, score with rising intensity was was the phrasing I used. And this is this is what it came back with. Right now on I'd Rather Be Scripting, Carrie <laughs> uses Google's AI Music Kitchen to rock your socks off. Oh, that's so good. Uh, so that's what it came up with, um, which I thought was really good. Um, and um, it, it it does kind of have that feel of, you know, it's something tension is brewing and all that other stuff. So uh, that was a good, good one. And what's cool is um, for for as we're recording, these are on the soundboard. So Google lets you download the, the, the results, which is which is nice of them. Um, another one that I, I ran um, was uh, this. Um, happy energetic upbeat chiptune um with like an arpeggiated melody and this is what it came up with in that because i love chiptunes so i wanted to see what it would generate oh man i'm playing sonic the hedgehog (laughs) it's so fun (laughs) this is great no uh no overlay on this one in terms of talk track i love it Um, so yeah, it does a really cool job of that. Um, and it sounds like a chip tune and it's nice and bouncy. Um, so I was, I, I downloaded that one. Um, and then I asked it, uh, for something, a little change of pace, a slow, lazy instrumental that evokes peace. Uh, and I explicitly asked for peace after a thunderstorm, um, which I don't think it quite grokked, but, um, nevertheless, this is what it came up with. it's a nice groove um so that's a if (laughs) if you and i were on uh public television doing this podcast in the 80s but on on public access tv that 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 would have been it that would have been perfect yes that would have been it yes um so um now, I will fully admit those are like handpicked the best I was getting out of it. Um, some of what it generates um, has and, and you can maybe tell in the last one, there's some artifacting going on where maybe it starts to sound like it's uh, being played over a telephone or like there's really heavy compression artifacts. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's compressed. Um, I, I, it's just I think that's how it's generating its audio. Um but then sometimes it would come through really nice and clean, like the first couple. 
Um, the other stuff that, I, that I would run into every once in a bit is sometimes it would very quickly lose the plot. <laughs> so it would start off in some going in some direction and then just all of a sudden there's kind of this just random mel- melody of notes. And it's like, okay, not sure where you were going there. Um, but it is still a super, lo- super really fun to play with. Um, that was good English. Uh, it's really fun <laughs> to play with. Um, and um, it generates uh, some interesting ideas. I do wish there was a way that you could say, okay, what would the equivalent MIDI be of that or whatever? But I know that's not how this is working. Um, so if you wanted to use it for like a musical idea, you might have to play around with it a little bit and use your ear to figure out what it was doing. But I thought it was I thought it was super fun. And just the, this concept of telling it with text I want some music that does this. And, you know, a couple seconds later, you get a 20 second track that doesn't do half bad. (laughs) So you said, you know, that's not how that's working. Do you know how it is working? Because one of my questions was one, what's the output? But two, like, even before you get to the output, like I kind of wonder, right? Like, I mean, it's either got to be, I mean, it's either going to be like MIDI and synthesizers uh, samples or live musicians. And I, I don't think it's live musicians, uh, playing, you know, kind of coming up with that on the fly. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious, like, do you have any indication so far of like what's going on under the hood? And, uh, ultimately w- once you get something, is it literally just that little snippet of a audio file and that's all you get? Yeah. So yes. Um, when you, so you, you give it a prompt, you, you wait your, it's, it's actually fairly quick. So what, maybe 10 seconds or so for it to generate something. Um, and then it, it comes back in um, your browser with a little uh, playlist of two tracks um, and it starts playing it automatically. Um, so it'll, you, you, you immediately hear your results. Um, and then um, it's in that same interface, you can give it a trophy if you really liked it which um, I've been doing on a few of these. And then there's the the requis- uh, re- requisite hamburger menu that lets you download. And the download is in, um, it's in MP3 format. So it gives you this little MP3 file that you get back. It's in mono, it's 24 kilohertz. So um, it's not CD quality by any stretch, um, but it's, um, it's, it feels like it's, I don't want to say it's early days, but if it, it's still kind of crazy how good 24 kilohertz, what that would maybe be, that even be FM radio quality. Maybe that's a, close to FM radio quality. Um, but it gives you these little 20 second MP3 files that you can download if you want to. Um, so you get those. And then as far as what it's doing under the hood, there's um, there's another page um, that describes a little bit of what what it, what it does. Um, so the abstract is uh, there's a whole paper that goes along with this uh, as well. Um, we introduce music LM, a model generating high fidelity music from text descriptions such as X, Y, and Z, um, and it's uh, generating. Uh, a hierarchical sequence to sequence modeling task. It generates music at 24 kilohertz. Um, but basically my understanding is it's uh, been uh, conditioned on uh, both text and a melody in that it can transform like even whistled and hum melodies. They're, like there's all sorts of things that the, the website isn't doing um, based upon my understanding. 
Um, but there's uh, all sorts of things that it's been been run on. And so my understanding is it's been kind of trained on the same kind of stuff. Like if you were doing a Dali where you're giving it a lot of images and say, here, go after this. Um, so it's not using um, just like a piano sample to generate a piano sound. It's learned what a piano sounds like. Um, and then generating the result or like if it's trained, uh, it's been trained on like how classical music might sound or how jazz music might sound. So it's not got the same um, underpinning as like just a MIDI generator of, oh, this is the the notes that you want to generate. That's that's at least my current understanding is that it's been more built on like you might train a dolly or a firefly. Um, so how it's generating all that stuff underneath and generating the audio, I don't think there would be a, an underlying MIDI representation because I think it's more like how, how what's the underlying representation of how I got to a, a final image or how did ChatGPT generate a final result? Wow. So, so building, almost building instruments on the fly is what it sounds like. I yeah. mean, I, I, you've been doing music long enough that you may remember this as well, but like in the, say, call it like the mid 2000s, I can distinctly recall going to uh, like larger music shops in Japan and buying uh, sample libraries on CD and importing those into, say, for example, Ableton Live. Although mm -hmm. I'm sure that worked in a lot of other ways, like a lot of other DAWs as well. Uh, but it sounds like in this case, uh, you could conceivably not need to do that because it thinks it knows what a piano is and then it can make one up on the fly. Potentially, I almost wonder if not only making music from text, but could it make instruments from text? Ooh, like, that would be I fun. Want, I want a honky-tonk honky piano that's been sitting in a dusty bar in West Texas for the last 60 years. Something like that. And I'm then going to it... have to ask it to generate a honky-tonk rendition. <laughs> yeah, but if it could give you that mapped out as a MIDI instrument or some sort of synthesized instrument, um, that could be pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be... It, 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 I'm going to have to try this now and, and run it through Logic or something like that and do a do a sample of some something that it's generated. Um, just to see what it would come, what what that would sound like, because it feels like you could get some really interesting results. Because one of the um, one of the prompts that I gave it, and I didn't save the MIDI file or the the MP3 file. I should have. Um, I had asked explicitly for like um, a steel drum sound, and it can clearly do a steel drum sound. Um, but what it gave me was this really weird steel drum inspired ask, but almost like what a steel drum would sound like if somehow it was also a piccolo. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not a great description, but it like had these like high overtones. It didn't attack like a, like with like a, like you'd strike a, a steel drum. It had this slow um, attack instead. And it, it sounded like it, it didn't match the prompt. So I didn't give it the trophy, but it was really kind of interesting. Um, so it, it definitely feels like it could generate some some very different um, results, which would be fun to play with in a, in a DAW. And that's classic audio synthesis anyways, right? Like we've all, if we've done anything with audio synthesis, we've all like, you know, hit the setting on our Casio keyboard in the 80s that said that, you know, you're going to, they're going to let you play the vibraphone. And it kind of sounded like the vibraphone, but not totally. Uh, so I almost wonder <laughs> if that's kind of like just a natural process that these things have to go through is like, 
find the ones that are a little bit off. And then the funny thing, of course, is later on, if you decide you want that unique sort of uh, steel drum piccolo, (laughs) 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 whether you can get get back to that and map it out onto your keyboard so that you can play it uh, would be interesting. It would be. Um, I opened up the paper and here and here's a little bit more um, about how they did it. Um, so there's a training and inference. Um, uh, we train on the free Mars, free Mars, the free music archive data set. Um, so this is from like 2017. Um, they also have semantic and acoustic modeling stages um, on a data set containing 5 million audio clips. Uh, amounting to 280,000 hours of music. Um, and this is why it outputs at 24 kilohertz, because the music is at 24 kilohertz, the, uh, the original training set. Um, we used 30 and 10 second random crops of target audio. Um, and it goes on from there. Um, and then to evaluate, um, they also used a, a data set of 5.5 thousand music clips. Uh, from audio set paired with corresponding text descriptions in English written by 10 professional musicians. So kind of mapping it back to what kind of prompt would I have done to get that original audio file. So um, it's definitely generating the audio fully on the fly, just like like there's no underlying MIDI uh, represented, um, which is, it just kind of blows my mind that it's able to do what it's doing, even if it's mono and 24 kilohertz, and you might have to do some massaging if you pulled it into your DAW to, to get it into something that would work in a CD quality environment or what have you. But um, it's, I, it, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And just what it comes up with um, in terms of the instruments it selects, like I'm not, most of these times I'm not telling, giving it an instrument choice. It's just doing it. Um, it's, it's pretty slick. <laughs> And I linked in the show notes here to their the data set that they reference on their examples page. Uh, it's on Kaggle. And the data set's called Music Caps. At least the one that they've linked to here says it's 5.5K. So 5,500 high quality music mm-hmm. captions written by musicians. Um, and yeah, it's interesting, right? So 24K... Uh, uh, sample is that sample rate? Jeez, yes. I've okay. Thank you. I, I've <laughs> haven't done this long enough that I can remember inherently what they mean, but then forget the labels. So the the twenty four k sample rate, right? Which is uh, effectively roughly half of what CD would be, because I think CD is forty four point one k. Your memory is perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. So <laughs> there there was a while a time where I lived this stuff. Uh, so yeah, and I, I think that you know for for some folks that are actually um, you know, if they're really into these kind of things, you'll find that they want at least uh, while they're rec- building out or recording or creating more closer to something like 96K. Yep. So my guess is that like this is a solid data set as a proof of concept. And mm-hmm. the results, quite honestly, like some of what you played us here with a little massaging could absolutely be passable, say for like a podcast intro. Yes. Right. <laughs> so even with something like this, there are use cases Mm -hmm. um and then uh of course the the trick here is how much data can you get um you think about for example and this is where another one where you may need to check me on my numbers but imagine for example like uh midi as a technology so midi has different levels of sensitivity for each note Mm -hmm. that you can play on a key is it a hundred and 
120 something is it 140 i don't remember there's like 127 or 127 or 128 127 depending on if it starts on zero or one right so yeah so exactly and so like there there are those out there that would make the case that like that's actually well it sounds like a lot there's a lot missing between Mm -hmm. those you know each one of those steps and so like if you play a super quiet key versus a super loud key sure whatever but if you're really trying to get that emotional dynamic range you know i i don't necessarily have a hard point of view on that i've i've definitely benefited from midi over the years in lots of interesting ways but the reason i mentioned that is that Similar to that, the the data sets that go into AI, right? 5,500 samples sounds like a lot, but then you think about like how many instruments is that? And then, <laughs> right. okay, great. For each instrument, how much, how many of those samples are they getting? And, uh, you know, what level of, you know, all, all these sorts of things. So anyways, that's not to downplay this at all. This is really, really it's cool. Really cool. Uh, but you can also but yes. start to imagine a bit of like what some of the sort of, vectors of objection might be to to using this in certain scenarios Mm -hmm. yeah and um that's i mean that's always the hard uh the challenge i mean the ai is only ever as good as um the 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 data that it's been exposed to and i mean I have no idea what kind of mu- uh, what specifically what kind of music it's it's been trained on. I imagine it's over a wide variety of genres and things like that. But um, like clearly, like you like uh, you can even uh, Google's uh, uh, initial readme when you get in there will even tell you like if you ask it to play in the style of a certain artist, it won't do that. Um, presumably, probably because it has not heard that artist, but I mean, there would all be all sorts of other ramifications or concerns there anyway, um, in terms of copyright and all of that stuff. So, um, clearly there's, there, there are limits around that, but even from the, the limited data set that it has heard, it's, it's really interesting. And I could see like, it it could go, (laughs) it could be really interesting, uh, down the road, um, to your other uh, point uh, about um, like what what might you be missing? Um, this is why MIDI 2.0 exists, and there's now a high resolution velocity tag. What? So you can get crazy amounts of uh, expression what, <laughs> in what, MIDI what? 2 now. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's wild. So MIDI's been around. I mean. I hazard to place a guess, but if I had to guess, I I, I want to say something like, would it be the seventies or the eighties? Oh, it's been around forever. <laughs> it is a, by technology standards, ancient uh, technology. Um, and so I, I'm really curious though, what that means for uh, what MIDI 2.0 would mean for, um, for everybody. Right. Because like, if mm-hmm. you have something that's so ingrained, right. Like MIDI is like baked into the core of Mac OS, for example, yes. I remember when I first got a Mac OS 10 based laptop, I was so excited because it had core MIDI as part of it. And what that right? meant was you could plug in MIDI instruments via USB and not have to go through a bunch of song and dance to like get them to work. Like the OS would recognize them. Mm-hmm. And, and so which was so nice. Right. But then think about that. That's like saying, for example, um, you want to go to a, a new generation of PDF. Like, okay, well, <laughs> you can make that, you can make the standard for that. But like, how do you get everybody to that? The amount of support, the, matter, the, the amount of like uh, backwards compatibility. Uh, so anyways, again, all of that said, that is really cool that there's a MIDI 2.0. I didn't know that was a thing yes. people were thinking about. 
Yes. Um, and I don't think that's that's not the sole reasoning for MIDI 2.0. And I, I'm trying to find the numbers on it because it's a crazy amount of velocities, which I don't like I would never need 127 is fine for me. Like I don't play with enough <laughs> accuracy for it to matter. Um, but yeah, um, there's a, there's a whole thing. It does mean that like you have to um, like you need uh, devices or software that's capable of understanding it and things like that to actually be able to use those features. So like all my keyboards are still, you know, MIDI 1.0 devices. I think maybe I might have one instrument that could does know how to do 2.0. Um, so it's going to be a while before it actually um, has has a lot of hold. Um, but um, yeah, when I when I learned that there was a MIDI 2.0, I was kind of like flabbergasted because like, what do you mean there's a 2.0? How in the world? <laughs> yeah, I'm scrubbing through the spec real quick visually just to kind of take it all in. And it looks like there's as recently as June. So uh, last month, there were um, updates, like fairly significant looking updates to MIDI 2.0. So this is very much a spec that looks to be like in, in active development. Yeah. Um, for, for folks, by the way, that like, happen to be doing a lot of MIDI, I'll say that like the, my one sort of pro tip, if I'm the right person to offer a pro tip on this sort of thing at all is uh, channels are like an unsort of spoken, they're an unspoken hero of MIDI. Because in addition to like the intensity that, you know, of each note, there are uh, channels that you can um, have your MIDI interface uh, send out uh, their signals over. And if you get into playing with that stuff, it's really kind of cool what you can do in a DAW just based on mm, which channels yes. you happen to be communicating over at the moment and which ones you are not. So I'm not sure how much of a wide no widely known thing about MIDI that is, but certainly for me, that was, I was years into using it before I discovered those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I think that one does come down to also like, um, like I'm, I, I come up from a pianist perspective. So usually I'm not thinking about channels cause it's like, why, why do you need multiple channels? I'm playing on <laughs> one, on a single instrument. And then it's like, Oh, but what if I want to, uh, separate my right hand from my left hand and all of those things. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now channels start making sense because I might want to uh, be able to turn one off or control the volume of that one separately from the other uh, the other melody line or what have you. And it's like, it, it very quickly becomes addictive. <laughs> yeah. I'll create I mean, another channel can, and I'll do this here. <laughs> you can absolutely go down that rabbit hole, but I, I'd say also, uh, you know, in terms of like performing live music over MIDI mm -hmm. channels are one of those things that like, yeah, if you don't take advantage of those, you'll be buying a lot of hardware. Yes. Because if you want to use it, then you're kind of you seeing each piece of hardware as a channel, which probably isn't the most effective way to go about things uh, unless you just love uh, buying gear. Uh, which, I mean, I do love buying gear, but um, <laughs> I, my, my bank account does not love me buying gear. So. <laughs> Who doesn't love buying gear? <laughs> I, I, I look at um, uh, the shoot, uh, uh, Sweetwater, um, the, the, the instrument um, catalog they send out every year. And it's like, oh, I just drool over every single page. <laughs> Even though there's <laughs> instruments and, and things in there I will never need. It looks so enticing. Yeah, why don't I need this MIDI saxophone? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which I, I have see... considered actually grabbing. And what is what are they called? An uh, Ewe or something like that? I know I'm I'm butchering the name, but there's there's there is one out of there a a, a wind instrument that communicates over over MIDI, and it's like I, I oh, too I want have one of those. 
pondered that as well. I remember they had that in the local music shop uh, where I was living in southern Japan in the aughts. And I used to walk past that all the time and go, man, like, I I just need a good use case. Like, or, you right. know, I need a good reason. Like, what's the musical reason for me to have this? Uh, and think thankfully I, I never came up with that because yeah. quite honestly I had more more gear than I needed at the moment anyways same <laughs> but yes um midi 2.0 is a thing gear acquisition syndrome is definitely a thing um and um the midi 2.0 is a good excuse for gear acquisition syndrome <laughs> <laughs> I have to the spec change exactly <laughs> so uh, and kind of going down another vector of our conversation here, you know, we, we started by just saying, Hey, we talked, to, we've been talking a lot about AI stuff, uh, which is not unique at all to us because literally the whole tech world does. Uh, and we did the whole episode around music. You had this really cool update around Google's, uh, AI music thing, which looks pretty cool. Um, and uh, at the same time, I've, I've been thinking a bit more about the, the text generation side of the house. Uh, and specifically, um, well, I have a number of reasons to do so, but the one thing I want to talk about today is, um, so we are, my, my team at Nihilus, uh, we're, we're, we're sponsoring this event in Berlin at the end of July called We Are Developers World Congress. And uh, this event, by the way, I, I went last year just to kind of like scope it out. And uh, it was really great. I, I don't, I work in developer relations, so one would think that I just love conferences, but I have to say a lot of them are, you know, sometimes they just kind of are, I don't know what we're all doing there, <laughs> uh, but the, the, we are developers specifically and certainly not uniquely, but uh, specifically was just a fantastic time where it was kind of like 10,000 uh, people like you and me, Carrie, and oh. even, you know, just kind of like really <laughs> that so good. <laughs> speak the language and are kind of like in there and, and doing these things. And certainly people, you know, way beyond in engineering the, than myself, but either way, like it just felt like a, this awesome space to be in where everyone was, you know, kind of had that developer mindset and was there to be really engaged with what was going on. And that made it a lot of fun. Uh, you know, so I got to get hands on with, geez, I don't know, like, I think Stripe had this thing where you would pop open like a developer console in their docs and do some stuff there. And there were some prizes. Um, oh, that's awesome. There was one company giving away a, a, a trip to space. And then they had none other than William Shatner on their email campaign after you signed up for it. And uh, I mean, just all sorts of things. Um, and anyways, um so we're going to do that this year. What I mean is we are, we, our team are going to sponsor this event. And so as part of the sponsorship, we'll be uh, both there on the floor um, showing developers how to use our APIs, but also we get to do a workshop. And nice. Yeah. Right. So like workshops for me are like, that's gold. It like, I so much fun. I love a workshop. I love a workshop. I'd say like, for example, like that one time that uh, you and I uh, went with uh, Ingo, uh, our man on the ground in, uh, <laughs> in Germany and in Europe in general, he had scheduled this thing that was like a sort of tour of workshops where uh, this was back in the uh, when we were rolling out Adobe XD APIs. And we went uh, on a, a mini tour of London Amsterdam and as mentioned earlier, Mannheim, Mannheim. Germany. <laughs> and 
it was fantastic. It was awesome. Why was it so great? Well, because like it wasn't I mean, like, again, I don't you know, I don't dislike conferences, but sometimes it's more more. What is it? More talk, less rock. Like I want to, <laughs> I want to yes. rock. I want to like, I want, I want to get together with builders and and build stuff, you know, and like show them how to do things, and then like let them come up and show all their cool stuff. So this was like each one of those, if I recall correctly, what would you say? It's probably between thirty and fifty people, depending on the city, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, wow. I mean, like each one was just one day. We came in tried to give as few talks as possible to set the stage for like what we're here to do. Uh, and then gave people the afternoon to just like build some stuff. And they came up on stage at uh, stage, quote unquote, cause we were just in a room in each one of these, but they would come up and like demo things. And I mean, we saw people go from like, I've never seen this technology to, before to literally porting their own uh, integrations from an old API to a new one. Or literally building something net new. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, for me, this is super exciting. Those were uh, best parts of the days. <laughs> best parts of the day. I mean, that was a, quite a week. I, I, you know, that was the one time I've ever been to Amsterdam. And I don't know about you, but what, what, <laughs> I don't remember seeing much of it other than that no. conference. <laughs> we had a, I do recall one fantastic dinner in some alleyway that mm. only, oh, only yes. Ingo would know about. Yes. Uh, but and he's so awesome at knowing these things. But other than that, like we were kind of in and out of Amsterdam, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. It was sort of like we were part of the API CIA or something. We were just kind of like landed and hacked and then got out of there surgically. <laughs> <laughs> Insert bond theme now. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah. I'm, I, I had a kid home all weekend. So I, I caught up on uh, two decades of uh, Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't really do much else. So I was kind of just here on call the whole time. So yeah, it's on it's on my brain. But <laughs> why do I mention all of this anyway? So going back down the stack here, uh, it is because uh, we're we're giving a workshop at We Are Developers World Congress. And this workshop is going to be about how to use our APIs at Nihilus, which do like email calendar and contacts and um, AI in some way. So I know over the course of the last few episodes, I've, I've mentioned some repos I've put together that show how to do that with open AI APIs. And so I thought, okay, great. Well, we've got the solution already. The code's already checked in. Um, we can show people, for example, how to use Nihilus to read in their Gmail inbox and then categorize and or uh, TLDR or summarize that that email. And so I thought, cool, we're off to the races. And uh, one of the developer advocates on my team was, you know, kind of thinking through it. And he came back and said, Ash, I don't know if this is going to work because you have to pay for open AI, open AI APIs access. And uh-huh. <laughs> I, at first I thought I was like, I don't think you do. Uh, and I went and looked and I, I was like, let me go check real quick. And I had forgotten, but you do. And I am paying for it. And it the thing is, I've been using uh, GPT 3.5 Turbo, which is incredibly cheap. So I want to say like over the last three, two or three months, I've paid like a whole of 60 cents. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And so maybe I'm not doing as much as I should be with it. I mean, obviously I'm not like I'm not shipping a production app. I'm I'm building these little proofs of concepts to help developers do stuff with our APIs. Uh, but either way, it was so cheap I had just forgotten. Um, but here's the thing: uh, we don't want to run a workshop where part of the getting started is all right. Everybody, pull out your credit cards and pay this other company, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> money, and trust us, it won't be much. 
so we didn't want to do that. Uh, and then I started thinking, well, you know, I've seen other places on Reddit and stuff where people are talking about like having their own local LLM on their machine, which is another dream of mine anyway. A dream, it, probably easily realizable dream at this point, but uh, I want to do that. Uh, that's one of my next little projects. So you can grab one of these large language models and put it on your own machine and work with it there. Um, so I started following that path and ultimately ended up at this thing called <laughs> Hugging Face. Uh, so Hugging Face uh, is a thing that uh, all I could do describe it as is sort of like a, a GitHub, but for models and data sets. Yeah, I don't know if they would agree with me on that. So again, like I'm not super deep into this, but what I can say is that on Hugging Face, you can find open source models. Um, I think open source, sorry, I can say models, whether or not they're open source, you should find out depending on which one you want to use. Uh, but either way, you can find the models and uh, then and this is the part that unlocks the workshop for us at the conference. You can get an API key and call those models over the web without paying hugging face. Nice. Now, I'm sure that there's some sort of limit in there. I haven't done too much research on this yet because this is all a work in progress. Probably by the time this episode comes out, we will have done all of this. And so we will have the answers. But if I'm just building a basic proof of concept, I can go sign up for Hugging Face and without even downloading a ton of stuff, like I don't need to download a 20 gigabyte file. I can literally use their Node.js SDK, point it to the model using a string and then do stuff. Oh, so wow. I, yeah. So first of all, like that's just kind of in its own thing. Like we kind of figured some stuff out there where it was like, okay, if OpenAI is going to require the credit card swipe, which is fine, I'm sure they're all these things cost so much money to run makes sense to me somehow or another um, hugging face has a free tier that we can use and it gives developers potentially more flexibility in terms of which models they're using and there's a bit more of a community play as opposed to relying on right. a single uh, vendor and so for the purposes of a workshop that feels like a strong sort of you know statement right we're doing what i think is open source <laughs> to go look into that part of it, but <laughs> it's openly and freely free as in beer sort of accessible to anyone who wants to use it. And uh, so really at that point, the workshop is going to, you know, the first call it 20 minutes or so is going to be go sign up for Nihilus, which also has its own free tier, then go sign up for Hugging Face, which has its free tier, grab these two API keys and we're off to the races. Nice. Yeah, so I feel pretty unlocked there. But what I thought I would do is, you know, kind of to separate it from just the workshop for a minute, because I wanted to give you the idea of like the problem and the solution that led me to thinking about Hugging Face at all. Uh, but outside of the context of the conference, outside of the context of using it with Nihilus, um, I just kind of put together this basic, how do I even get started uh, repo? And it's just a 11 line script if you include the imports and the console log. Uh, the core of this thing is really a one-liner, um, but I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to this tiny, tiny, tiny repo that I put together. <laughs> and you're not kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's so the front door. I mean, again, like this, what you can do beyond getting through the front door. Well, anything. Uh, but the cool part of it is 
just sometimes you need to know where the front door is. Yes. And at least for the text generation, this was it. So, and by the way, um, kind of leading up to this at first, I was thinking, well, we're probably going to have to use LangChain in conjunction with something from Hugging Face and all of that kind of, but quite honestly, uh, at least from what I know today, this is it. Uh, this is how we would get started. So I thought I'd just kind of talk through some of the stuff uh, line by line, and it'll be really, really short. Um, so first up, they have like Hugging Face has an NPM module that you can download. Uh, so it's just Hugging Face, I think. Um, let me see what the package.json says here. So if you were to do NPM install, oh, so you can actually do like at Hugging Face slash um, module I want. <laughs> so in this case, I've nice. in the package.json, I've just put at Hugging Face slash inference. Um, so again, you know, go look to their documentation for all of the other potential avenues you could go down there. For for me, for what we need right now, this was enough. So in the JavaScript file, I'm just doing the I'm importing .env so I can pull in my credentials. I'm importing uh, a object called HF inference from that hugging face import that hugging face library that we just talked about. So I, I think of that as basically their their JavaScript SDK. I, I don't know. What I think they refer to it more as a library question mark, um, but I what way, it looks like yeah yeah, and and I'll, we can put link to the uh, the docs of this library in the show notes as well because um, all of the front door of this I think you know it didn't take long but I had some context I think if you were just kind of showing up and <laughs> yes. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot going on when you click in like models and it's like, oh boy, there's a lot here. Where do I start? <laughs> so right. having you, the front door is useful. You can end up going down some other rabbit holes. Uh, and and again, like I'm, I'm only, if anything, a few steps ahead of someone starting from nothing on this. So it's not like, you know, I'm the leading authority on anything here by any stretch of the imagination. But since I've done an, a little bit of this over the last few months, uh, I was able to kind of eventually find what I needed. Okay, so uh, docs in the show notes, coming back to the script. Script is you're importing that H HF inference, right? The hugging face inference uh, object. And then on uh, line four of the script as it is today, you're just assigning, a, you're instantiating a new uh, instance of that uh, class HF inference, passing in your API key. Now, I think there's other things that you can pass in there optionally. If you look at the docs, again, for this, you know, one liner didn't need to do all that, but that's all you do. So I'm assigning that to a constant called HF for hugging face. And then from there, that's where the, the fun starts. And uh, my one liner here is uh, I'm just assigning a constant called answer. Uh, we await the results of calling HF dot, dot text generation. Ain't top level await wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> top level await so good, right? Because otherwise, this would be like plugged into like a little init function for right. what I'm really trying to do a one liner of. And you always like you ever show those show those little things off where you're like, I swear to you, this is a one liner. You can ignore all of this. Like I made a function called init that. S says I'm doing async stuff and then I have to call that later. Uh, <laughs> At one liner name only, right? Yeah. <laughs> one liner name only. Is that a all no? All no. That's not very interesting. I was trying to. Uh, <laughs> we need a better acronym for that. <laughs> <laughs> or 
things that can't be one-liners in reality we need better abstractions like top level there we go yes Uh, so we slowly get there over time uh so yeah so on this line it's you know you got the uh top level await um and you're calling the hf dot text generation so does what it says on the 10 it's going to generate text and you just pass in an object with um and again who knows how many options there are for passing in on this object but the two that i avail myself of here are one you got to tell it the model i'm saying gpt2 why because uh you can actually use hugging faces library to call out to open ai i think question mark or that might have been Langchain. i don't remember but either way gpt2 is like freely available on hugging face oh wow so i thought you know to show our you know the team where we're putting this workshop together like here's how you would do it i'm just like oh, i'm gonna grab this off the shelf whatever and then i think the input just came from the javascript library docs if i remember correctly and so in the script it just says the answer to the universe is uh so if you were to run that script then you're going to get your answer back whatever thing it says and uh does it come up with 42 i don't know i'm not actually set up on this machine to run the scripts i'd have to go grab the avi key and everything uh that's on my work machine uh but yeah uh the the cool thing about this was right from um for folks who are thinking like how hard could this be to like just kind of dip your toe in the water uh again i had some contacts but not a ton um but coming from Ono, oh OpenAI won't work for this scenario, this workshop, because it's going to require everyone to put in credit card details on the fly at a conference, aka that, that's not happening. To coming back to someone with this tiny proof of concept of like, here's 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 the way in. Um, between Slack messages, I think this might have taken all the twenty minutes. Oh my goodness! So again, like you know, the the way in is you know you never want that to be hard. I think because so much of this technology is emerging, um, one, which technology should you pick off the shelf? Like is LangChain your entry point or should it be Hugging Face or something else or OpenAI? Um, there's not like one right answer to that. So that can be tough already to, to figure out which thing for your use case. For us, it needed to be free and simple to use for a workshop. Um, landed on Hugging Face pretty quickly. Once I realized that you didn't actually need LangChain to enter face into Hugging Face, they have their own SDK. So, Which is super cool. Yeah, that was the path I took. But um, I don't know. Hopefully this is helpful to somebody and uh, we'll, uh, you know, offer some links. Well, it's it it it's it is very helpful to me because um, I've been looking at. Um, uh, I think we've talked about it on the show before at the beginning of the season, maybe um, I, I do or I participate in a codathon um, for this really great um organization called we connect the dots and it's all about um introducing computing technology and programming and and all all sorts of other things that come along with that robotics and ai to um uh uh uh, young adults and and teens and and really um students who may not have uh, be terribly well advantaged in terms of having just you know, access to the latest and greatest, right? They may, their only computing device may be a Chromebook they get from their school, which is incredibly locked down. And there's, you know, so there's limited things that you can do with it. Um, But one of the things that we've been thinking about is um, updating the curriculum a little bit to include some 
something about AI, because it's such a prevalent thing, no matter what. I, I mean, you could go to ChatGPT and ask it to say, hey, generate a, a script for me that does X, Y, and Z, which is going to be a whole new challenge because you have the, you, you may have the temptation as a student to say, oh, I'll just get it to build my website for me. And it's like, but then if you try to go fix it, you won't understand like, why did it do what it did? Or if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't work correctly, like you still need to know your stuff to be able to fact check or code check um, chat GPT or Copilot or what have you. Um, but then there's also the question of like, we want to ensure that we're giving students the skills that are relevant to the workplace that they're going to be going into. And um, not only are you going to need to be using AI in a commercial sense of, you know, being able to ask it questions and things like that, but you may be building software that relies upon AI. And um, the hard part with, with uh, chat, with, with like uh, open AI is, Oh, we're going to have to pay for that somehow, or students are going to have to pay for it. And, and, and that's not the easiest thing in the world, especially if your only computing device is coming from as the school as a Chromebook, you may not have the, the resources available. And so being able to do something where it's free um, and still interesting, not only, not only just interesting, but like there's, there's 250,000 or so models that Hugging Face is telling me they have online right now. Um, like that's a lot of exploring you could do um, without having to lay out significant resources. And it took 11 lines to, to and four of those, one, two, no, three of those, three of those are blank lines. A fourth is a console lock <laughs> and two of them are import statements. So like literally um, the simplest possible way to get started. Um, and the course that I teach is, um, is usually sandwiched in between CSS and, and HTML where uh, you're getting the basics of how do you build a web page at all, um, which um, for a student who's never known anything about technology is it, it, that's a challenge all on its own, right? how to create HTML files and CSS files and make the browser do what you want it to do from a layout perspective. Um, there are still days where I, 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 my CSS knowledge fails me because my goodness, CSS is so powerful, but it also just keeps blowing my mind um, to um, React, which is the really advanced course. But to get to React, you need to know JavaScript. Um, so my course that I, that I build a curriculum for typically sits in the middle there. Um, and you want to be able to illustrate uh, real world needs and use cases there, but you're also just learning about programming. So you can't go too far, like uh, show a hundred lines of code and you're going to lose the student. Like being able to show them something this, this small that is still really interesting and uh, is using some AI is going to be um, really interesting. So I'm excited to, to play with this more because I feel like this could be a really good ad uh, to that without and add both ways, additive and advertisement um, to using um, AI and showing that it's not, it, it's not scary and it, it doesn't require a lot of work to get set up. I think that with, in that sort of situation, something like this, I mean, you can imagine building a page in React where the user asks a question that gets passed into a script like this, and then the answer gets populated back on the page. Doing that, you're almost building your own chat GPT clone, which is, again, like that 
I, I think it's interesting that autocompletes and the like are, you know, like that, that sort of user interface is the path of least resistance to giving the user something out of these models. Where I think it gets tricky, and this is, I, I've mentioned this before, but I still don't have an answer to it yet, is how to normalize output in yeah. a way that you can act upon it program programmatically. So in other words, what I mean by that is like, um, not act on pro programmatically in terms of like, I got a string and now I'm going to put it on the page, but programmatically in terms of I was returned a response and my program does something based on that, right. that <laughs> the user is not going to see verbatim. Uh, right now, I, I my understanding is that Langchain has some things like that in it that will also not, not only will it like have an idea for, or not have an idea, but like the developer can say, okay, this is the type of output I expect. And then Langchain can do some stuff internally to keep trying until it gets the right type of output. Uh, I think is my, that's what I'm understanding anyways. I think, did, did I mention last time about the Langchain docs to you at all? Uh, I do not remember. I feel like I might have, but I'll, I'll throw these in the show notes as well. I also threw another link about, uh, there's a Reddit thread that got some traction on Hacker News about uh, the name... <laughs> The name of the Reddit thread is Link Chain is Pointless. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't really know. I'm, I'm again, like every week stuff changes so much, but I thought that the way that the Link Chain documentation is laid out is pretty interesting. Be yes, you're right. We, we did about talk this, right? about this. Yeah, right. So you can like just start at the concept level and then dive down into the implementation stuff for Python or JavaScript. And I like that. So anyways, uh, you can dive into some of that stuff as well. But I think it has some of those niceties baked into it that, sure, I could build myself. But at the same time, like, then I have to realize that that's a thing I need to do in the first place when most if 90% of the time it works, I might not be realizing what foot guns I'm baking into my program. So um, <laughs> there's still yeah. more to discover here. Yeah. And that's, that, that's, that, that's the challenge. Um, especially if you want to take it beyond, especially in like an educational, um, sense, um, for, for the level two course, which is JavaScript, um, in front of react after HTML, like making your own little chat bot or something along those lines, um, nicely illustrates that it's not terribly difficult to get into it. You can get something that's dynamic and still, you know, visually interesting. Um, but yeah, where do you take it from? How do you take it from there and and start to turn it into, um, like if you, if you have to go and add link chain to it, for example, that's where it's like, okay, that's probably going to be in a level three course because that's going to take a significant more amount of JavaScript or understanding of what's going on. Um, but I do kind of like that this, you know, like you've been calling um, this the front door is that it, it scales in a way where it's like, oh, I can, you know, it's not so hard for me to get started. And if that piques someone's interest, then it's like, oh, and here's all these other things that you can do. And then Langchain might be, okay, this is your step 2.0 um, as you go down your journey. Um, but it is always a little bit interesting, like how do you, what kind of examples or, or demos do you want to teach with? Because um, you want to use something that's both compelling, but also relevant. And, um, and isn't going to inadvertently lead a student down to their own foot guns, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, so um, it's 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 definitely worth pointing out of like how how do you um, get the right kind of data back from something if you wanted to do something decision based based upon uh, what it came back with. Um, so it's definitely something I need to to think about in terms of the curriculum. 
And that's something I expect to be playing with a bit over the next while. Um, probably I would have been doing that this weekend if I wasn't um, taking care of someone with a fever, uh, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Uh, but when I have time on the weekends, I, I noodle around on this stuff a lot now. Um, and there's a good Reddit thread somewhere. Let me see if I can find it. I think it's in the subreddit called Local Llama uh, that just kind of has like an overview of different like local uh, LLMs, Llama based LLMs, I suppose. I, I, don't, I don't know so much about this yet, but one of the things that I intend to do uh, is get one of these on my local machine and start noodling around with it so that at least for my own personal use, I just have something here. Uh, I don't know if that's, yeah. uh, you know, like may not change my entire world, but I, I, I'm really excited about like having something locally that doesn't have to require the internet in order to uh, right. interact. There, it's there. I don't know. I mean, there's, it's not that I'm necessarily concerned about like the kinds of prompts or, or whatever I might be sending over, but like, uh, I'm sure like with hugging face, there's got to be like rate limits or, you know, there's something in there to support a free tier. So like if I'm iterating, do I have to worry? How much do I have to worry about that? Um, and of course, you are still sending those whatever you're generating off to another endpoint. Um, how comfortable are you with that? Um, if you can generate something locally, it's nice to have. And on those rare moments, like, well, and I call them rare, they're less they're less rare where I live. Um, sometimes just a passing thunderstorm will take out our internet. <laughs> and so it's like, it's nice having locally, locally installed things. Like I have diffusion B sitting on my MacBook, and, um, I don't use it on a continuous basis cause you know, there's Firefly or there's, um, uh, Dolly or what have you, but, um, it's nice knowing that I can, um, in the, in the case when my, my internet has, has disappeared and, and gone the way of a lightning strike. Um, so yeah, um, I do, I am curious cause uh, I know like diffusion B, um, and this will be, I'll, I'll be curious to see how this path works out for you. Um, cause I know like diffusion B, it definitely, um, takes, wants to be on a, a modern Mac, like, um, uh, I, uh, on an M one on my M one pro, um, it's somewhere around 30 to 45, maybe a little bit longer seconds to get something out of it. I can't imagine what it would be if you were on an earlier machine. Um, but I know memory also matters. And like one of the things that I'm looking at um, in local llama is like about four posts down. Uh, well, maybe not four. Um, it moved a little bit. I'll swear. Eight posts down. Best local chat model for M2 Max. 32 gigs. And I'm going... Well, my MacBook Pro only uh, just just only has 32 gigs. Like it's not fully spec'd out or anything like that. And it's like, oh, how many apps do I have to close <laughs> to be able to run that? So I'm, I'll be very interesting to see what like what kind of how much memory do you have to have in order to get good results? Yeah, I, I I'm I'm curious about that as well. I, I think I so I just one went from a 2019 MacBook pro on intel i9 and i would run diffusion b and that would be like a sort of go and make yourself a cup of coffee <laughs> affair while your laptop and how long is this coffee making affair by the <laughs> way <laughs> i mean yeah i mean I, I i don't totally remember i'm gonna call it five minutes but i don't think i'm stretching i i think it could have even been longer in certain circumstances 
And uh, of course, the the fans sort of help your <laughs> Mac like hover over your desk while that's happening. Um, so while we're talking, <laughs> I just ran Diffusion B on my new MacBook Studio powered by an M2 Ultra, and it took three seconds oh my to goodness. <laughs> create a image. I asked it to make an image that's a podcaster in uh, Piet Mondrian style. Uh, it made <laughs> something. I don't. I mean. I, <laughs> You can't, it looks like more like Mondrian than it does a podcaster, but I, I you know, like, what are you going to do with that? Because if you're familiar with Mondrian's work, it would be tough to just like make a person on a microphone in, in that style. So <laughs> anyways, um, but either way that, uh, you know, that was, I, I, I don't even know like what level of performance gain that was, but uh, having, having the M2 uh, definitely helps here. My three seconds. Good night. Um, now, yes, to be fair, you're, you're on a, um, M2. It's an M2 ultra ultra. Yeah. So yeah, this was like, you know, I was like, this is the first desktop I've ever owned. I've been in the market for a desktop since roughly 2017 and, uh, thought about the iMac pros when those were a thing and, uh, never about the Mac pro. Cause I, whatever that's whoever that's for, it's not for me. Uh, it's just beyond what I need to pay. Um, for something, but for running kind of some of this AI stuff, I mean, again, the Mac studio may not be the perfect AI machine at all. Uh, I certainly know some people who are Mac folks that end up buying like a, a windows machine or a, a dedicated Linux machine in order to get the specs they need. Uh, but so far so good on the, the few things I have been doing locally. And I, I feel like diffusion B is, um, as reasonable a test as any in user space to find out like what it can do. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, three seconds is like I have I, I just gave it a prompt. I am well past three seconds. It's it's currently thinking. Um, but like it just blows my mind that one, there's that much of an, a, a difference be, uh, between even the M1 and M2, which I'm sure there's some of the what that one has. How many GPU cores? Like I, I know this the specs are are kind of uh, really, really cool on, on that device. Um and then the amount of memory you have, I'm sure, also helps contribute to some of that. Because I know, like, the model for Diffusion B is at least eight gigs. Yeah. So let me see real quick. I'm gonna just see what I got here. Um, I'm gonna say that took about thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, like that—that's cool that you tried it on an M1 and felt com comfortable doing that. If if we were still recording and I was on my old Intel machine. <laughs> Nope. I would have never tried it because <laughs> it just would have, there's no way that between recording live and all this other stuff. I mean, I, I love that the fusion B at the bottom says like, please close other applications for best right. speed. Uh, but I'm like, well, I, you know what? Like I got three seconds. Like I, it, there are certain things I don't want to wait three seconds for, but this is not it. Cause right. like that, I mean, sometimes I'm waiting more than that for like, I don't know, Webpack to like rebuild a, oh, a website. Or, you know what I mean? So like, yes. this is not bad. Uh, okay, so in this Mac Studio, uh, and I feel silly doing this, but going to because like it is uh, maybe it's interesting to somebody if they're thinking about getting one of these. Um, so I will say in advance that like if there was one thing about certain Mac Studios on the first generation that it seemed like they were getting dunked on for, it was the sound of the fans coming out of the back. Um, on my Mac Studio, uh, I, I'm fairly certain the fans are usually on, but I only know it if I put my hand up to the very back, I can kind of feel a gentle breeze. I've never heard it wow. doing anything once. Nice. Uh, so for what it's worth, like, I don't think that the, you know, if you're just anti-fan all around, like for whatever reason, like then this is not also not going to be your machine. But like, again, I 
the only reason I've even felt for the fans is academically just curious <laughs> because I knew that people were complaining about that on the M1s. So, and sometimes you just got to be reassured that, yes, it is cooling properly. <laughs> yep. And then for uh, the and, and by the way, like uh, this, I, I will also say just like, yeah, tactily. I think that's the right word. Like when I touch the this Mac studio, like it's never felt even warm. Uh, so, and I, I live in a very old New York house that, uh, you know, this isn't <laughs> always climate controls the way that one might imagine if they live in other parts of the country. So, uh, even in a world like that, where the house is not always say, uh, 72 degrees or below, uh, it's been, it, it's never felt warm to the touch. Uh, okay. Spec wise, here we go. Uh, and sorry, I'm doing this, but maybe again, for someone might find it useful. So this is a Apple M2 Ultra. Uh, I got the uh, 24 core. Uh, so nice. the, that's the number of, well, it's interesting because system profiler doesn't break this out in a way that is super intuitive now that I remember it. So uh, bear with me as I think through this out loud, but the, the number of cores is 24. So there's 16 performance cores and eight efficiency cores. I think that's all CPU if I remember correctly. I'll have to like it doesn't put GPU at the top level, which is like interesting. Maybe very Apple kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, I'll yeah. grant you that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Like again, like I not that I'm dinging Apple for this, but it is kind of interesting because like GPUs, like when you buy machines these days, G, the number of GPUs is definitely like in the first line the name of the machine you're buying but system profiler hasn't caught up to that when they do their hard hardware overview as far as i can see uh but i'll, I'll dig for that in just a second um memory i got 128 gigabytes i don't think that's maxed out for this machine but it felt like more than enough for me my other the macbook pro that i had geez was it 32 or 64 and the, i don't remember but the reason i got that uh uh, amount of RAM when I did was simply to be able to uh, work with raw files faster. Mm -hmm. um, if Especially you with are these, the newer your camera, the bigger those files get. Yeah. And so uh, pre pandemic, when I bought that uh, Mac, like I had my camera with me always during the pandemic, I definitely started shooting less because I just kind of don't leave the house as much on my actual camera. And also iPhone cameras have gotten stupidly good. Uh, but the either way, like ha having that if you're a photographer. So when I say raw files, by the way, for anyone who doesn't do like digital photography outside of their own phones, probably you don't come across this. But an, a raw R-A-W file is like a, you know, a one sort of format that you can snap photos in or store photos in. And they're absolutely massive. I mean, I can rem remember a time not that long ago where even in the finder trying to do a quick look on a raw file would like bring oh. the finder to its knees. its knees. And it was so I, I to say like, it's tough, right? Because if you shoot in raw, uh, this is really tangential now, but if you shoot in raw, one of the obnoxious things is like, it's so hard to just run through a list of photos and say this, this, not this, not this, not this, and start throwing yes. things away. Yeah. Uh, I've been waiting on uh, machines to catch up to that ability. So I kind of got in this lazy habit of just saying like, fine, I can't, I can't wait. Here's one thing I don't have three seconds for or more. And oftentimes <laughs> it was more back in the day was yes. you having quick look, try to show me what this freaking <laughs> raw image looks like. Forever. So I can decide if I want it. Uh, so I kind of got in this lazy pattern of just like, well, I'll just keep them all. And at some point, um, 
technology will catch up to me where one, it'll open faster, but two, iPhoto will eventually start to detect potential duplicates, which that's a thing it does now. It does now, yeah. That it didn't used to do. Which is handy. So over time, uh, I, I think, you know, it's my time is better spent not going through all that stuff and because at some point the technology will help me. And I, I think uh, so far it feels like history is bearing me out on that one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um... Having having memory and 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 performance to handle those is, is definitely uh, important because um, just decompressing those things. Um, like I, I still, I mean, if you didn't have what if you had, I can't even imagine thinking about doing that on like an M1 uh, eight gig machine. Like it may do use memory more efficient or because it has the the shared memory for GPU and CPU. But man, try to do any degree of raw photography uh, on an eight gig machine, and you're going to be in pain. When you say eight gig, you're yeah, you're talking about RAM. Yeah, yeah. So to me, like eight gigabytes of RAM today, or last year, or the year before, maybe even before that, was sort of like the why are we still selling iPhones uh, that <laughs> right? only have four gigabytes of storage kind of thing. Like it doesn't make sense. No. Like I, I, I mean, there there must be a reason why uh, people feel like they can get away with, or, or sorry, maybe Apple feels like people can get away with eight gigabytes of RAM on a machine. But I, I, I just I haven't. I can't remember like the last time I had a machine that had eight gigabytes of RAM, but I want to say it was like in the previous century. Yeah. Like, cause I think even the uh, MacBook or sorry, what was it? What are they called then? PowerBook G4 that I had. I want to say, was that not 16 gigabytes? I'd have to, I mean, I, that machine, I still have it somewhere. I, I'd have to go dig it out. But if it wasn't, if it wasn't 16, then it was eight, but that was like the absolute maximum you could get at the time. Yeah. Yeah, most memory you can get is always a good call. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So the last one here is, uh, and this. So I dug it up in System Profiler. So like, if you are, wait, did they change the name of that app? It's called System Information now. Yes. They must have changed the yep, name of it. They okay, changed so the name of it. Apple doing system... Apple things. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Hey, look. You know what? I'm not sad about them changing system preferences to system settings, only because. Uh, I use, uh, what's the command space thing? Uh, spotlight spotlight yep. to, to find everything. And so, yes. uh, the, the problem was trying to remember which machine I was on to search <laughs> for the word settings or preferences. So <laughs> I'm okay with a name change, uh, but totally. pro system profiler changing. I'm not whatever that's weird, but okay. So if you, if you do go like, let's say for example, if you've never done this before and chances are, if you're, you know someone listening to this podcast, you've definitely done this before, but I'll, I'll say it anyways. You go into the Apple menu, right under the Apple menu on your Mac, there's this thing called, there's a menu item that says about this Mac. You can click that and it'll tell you about your chip, memory, serial number, and Mac OS. And I think if you option click, some of these things are, uh, you can, I don't remember what the keys are, but you can get other things if you need them. It also tells you what OS version you're running, but if you want more information, guess what? You click the more info button and Oh, what? That didn't go. Okay, sorry. This is really weird. I'm, I'm live it, it, learning about yeah, Ventura. Yeah, you're live learning about Ventura. So it goes to system settings um, and then scroll down on the tab that comes up and then their system report. Okay, yeah. So didn't it used to be like you would go it straight to system? It used to go straight system... to it. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> you you are I'm not forgetting <laughs> because I did the same thing just before you did it and going, <laughs> where did this take me? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I had I, the, so I had the system settings 
want system profiler uh, app open. And so the, yeah, I was kind of following my own breadcrumbs again, starting with the about this Mac thing. Yeah, so then I, I was like, then it'll open system settings and it did not. So yeah, like Harry said, it opens up uh, the system settings app at the bottom. You might have to scroll down or uh, it's either just down there at the bottom. It'll say system report, which bizarrely opens an app called system information. Uh, and so that's where <laughs> Gary's laughing. <laughs> I I, I want to nomenclature is hard. I'll give Apple a pass. <laughs> All right, yeah, no, it's fine. I just like I to me like I don't mind a rename. I just want them like I want things renamed all the way down the stack. Carrie, right. you and I have worked on projects in the past where I think I had to go with the flamethrower oh, yes. trying to figure that out. It's like, great, we renamed this one thing. Can we do like everything? Because Can otherwise, we, we have consistent? things that are. Yeah, labels that are inconsistent now. Uh, so anyways, you, if you go into that system information app, the hardware, uh, it's probably like the top level hardware item on the left hand side is probably the one that is automatically selected if you didn't have it open. And it'll tell you like, what's your model name, uh, uh, model number, the chip, the number of cores, memory and that, right? So that's what when I earlier when I was saying in this app, that it's kind of odd that like GPU didn't make the cut for uh, top level. Um, this yeah. is what I was referring to, uh, a little strange. but where do you get it? Well, under hardware, if you open up that, uh, disclosure sort of, uh, Chevron thing next to hardware, uh, you get a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like camera and card reader and things, I don't know, Apple pay and whatever graphics and displays is what you want. And then from under that, that's where it'll tell you. So like for me, for example, uh, Graphics displays, and by the way, I did a double take when I saw this number carry a second ago <laughs> for this machine. Uh, so chipset models has Apple M2 Ultra, which we already covered. Uh, but in this case, the graphics and displays type chip. I guess this is because it's like an integrated system on a chip thing. It it all rolls back into M2 Ultra somehow. Total number of cores. <laughs> 60 <laughs> <laughs> holy crap <laughs> i'm not even sure what was i what was i thinking uh, i'm gonna have 60. to you know, like re really do some stuff to make this thing uh worthwhile for me to have yeah um that thing should be able to do all sorts of things before it starts sweating um just for comparison so diffusion beyond yours took three seconds um diffusion beyond mine took about 30 seconds and it's an m1 uh pro machine it's a it's a macbook pro um, so it's hardware, not maxed out. It's got 32 gigs of memory, um, 10 cores, eight of which are performance to efficiency. Um, and then <laughs> the GPU, um, is 16 cores, which it's should, still a lot. <laughs> that's still like insane. Right. I mean, like, still I don't insane, know, like I'd but say compared to 60. Yeah. <laughs> So there, there's some mild insanity going on with my ability to pick a machine. But at the same time, I really wanted like if I was getting a desktop, like what I wanted was like a machine that's just going to be here for you many know, years, Yeah, many, many years. I mean, I had, for example, like until I got that 2019 MacBook Pro, I had a MacBook Air, which is a fantastic machine um, from 2013. And it lasted me all that time. I can imagine this M2 really lasting me for longer than that, unless uh, some sort of technology starts to outstrip the hardware in unexpected ways. But uh, for a lot of the things, and I think the only one that stands the chance of doing that is the AI stuff, honestly, because for everything else, like I feel like, um, you know, Lightroom or Photoshop, for example, uh, while it can take advantage of this hardware, hopefully uh, it shouldn't 
require it because most mere mortals are not going to own like a, a, a desktop that has 60 GPU cores. Yeah. Well, and I mean, at some point, diminishing returns and all of that jazz. I mean, you've got to move, you've still got to move the data around and coordinate all those cores together. Um, I, I, there was actually, um, what was I watching? It was, it was something on YouTube. Oh, it was about this new, um, the, from WWDC, this is totally tangential, but, um, not related to AI at all. Um, but, um, the game developer porting tool, toolkit porter, or it, uh, they have an acronym, which is really close to G- GPT. So be warned in terms of make sure you get your acronyms correct. Um, but um, basically, it's kind of like running Wine and a DirectX translation layer and all of this stuff. And it's meant for developers. But of course, people are trying it and seeing what how games will perform. And the last one that I watched, because um, I'm curious, I would love to, I, I want to play around with it myself a little bit just to see what it does. Um they uh, ran the benchmarks and oddly enough, it, the ultra behaved, uh, performed worse than the, um, than I think it was the pro, um, a couple models below it. And there was no obvious reason as to why other than in my brain, the only thing I could think of is, is there something about how it's managing all those threads or, or moving the data around appropriately that that toolkit is just not, not ready for yet because to your point, most mere mortals are not sitting on 60 GPU cores and however many, 128 gigs of memory. Um, so Apple clearly didn't optimize for it. Um, but it is definitely um, like, I can only ever imagine like really AI would be the, the biggest, like if if you decide that you need a 256 gig uh, memory model or, or a, a text model, that's m- maybe when you might need to upgrade. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and hopefully I don't get there. I'd like to hang on to this machine for a good long time. I've, yeah. uh, as I mentioned, uh, I'm a pretty big into, well, I, I didn't mention this in this podcast. I, now that I remember, <laughs> I'd mentioned to you in a text message that I spent some of my weekend as well, uh, taking care of a sick kid when, when she was sleeping, uh, recabling my office. I I'm, I'm big into cable management, uh, which is a silly thing maybe to be big into, but like for me, it just, like I can't have cables everywhere. Uh, it just messes Don't come with over my to head. My office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was actually really curious to compare notes on how we are about this because I kind of figured we, we for some reason might be on opposite ends, which is <laughs> not a judgment at all. Uh, like I think in some ways, like you're spending your time more wisely because for me, like what did I do yesterday? I, I, uh, I pulled up a bunch of cables and redid them and figured out how to get the exact right length. And then also the ones that were long, I could like tie them up in ways. So even if I have them in the cable box under my desk, once I open that, uh, it's all well organized so I can see what's in there. Uh, and you know, that's a day of my life. I won't get back, but, but, but it looks better. I I guarantee you it looks better. (laughs) It's scratch. It's scratching an itch that I must have scratched because otherwise it's uh, living rent free in my head. Right. The fact that uh, I have a mess under my desk. So uh, let me guess. It sounds like you were on the other end of the spectrum there. Uh, Yes, there are. The the cables are about as half. uh, They're not completely haphazard, but um, I mean, I have exposed cables at the desk that I'm sitting on right now, and they uh, they they loop behind the desk to to take up the slack. Um, so I know there is a spider's nest of cables below the desk that I'm looking at, but um, 
unless an actual spider decides to jump out at me, it it uh, it, it it is not taking up rent in my in my head. <laughs> the one last thing that I need uh, for this setup is uh, I have, and I'm literally waiting on this to show up today. But I have uh, found what seems to be like a good uh, KVM switcher. So here's a common scenario that doesn't feel like it gets talked about enough. <laughs> but fair, <laughs> if you're a work from home tech worker, you probably have a machine that is your personal machine. And then you have the work machine that you are compelled to use by your by your company. And you probably have one monitor or one set of monitors to share them with. I personally have one monitor, but I can imagine a scenario where some people might have like two external monitors. Either way, uh, if you have monitors, you want to use them uh, for the machines, the machine that you are currently using. So uh, basically, this is a two to one scenario. So you count n number of monitors as one entity, and you want to run your your Mac or your computer into uh, that full set if you're using it. So some monitors have this built in where like you can switch between and indeed mine does. So like the monitor I have, it's like a Dell 4k something or other uh, alphabet soup of model name. Uh, and so like it, it has inputs for HDMI uh, display port and USB-C. Well, the problem is that like now if you have, for example, like say an audio interface, well, you need like a single hub that both of your Macs can take advantage of that. So I'm trying to use my one monitor as the hub for both of my Macs, which means I need to switch the Macs back and forth, but they both require for to be able to handle like moving your data from the audio interface to the Mac you're currently using, you got to have USB-C. Yeah. So if you got one USB-C port, that isn't going to cut it for that situation. So uh, I was I spent more time than I feel like it should have been required to find the concept of what's called a KVM switch. And I think KVM stands simply for keyboard, video and mouse. Sounds I right. I don't care about the K and the M here. I, I not that's not a going concern for me. I just use wireless for both of those. Uh, but for the video piece of it, yes, I need that. So I found what finally I landed on this thing known as like a two in one. Uh, USB-C KVM switcher or something. I I use some sort of jumble of those words to find something on, find a few things on Newegg and on uh, Amazon. Ultimately, I landed on one that's on Amazon um, just because it seemed to be the right thing. And if I need to handle a return, I can do that pretty quickly. Whereas with Newegg, like they were literally going to ship me something from somewhere in China. And I'm like, well, I'll I'll get there when I get there. But uh, this KVM switch that I got, I guess I'll I'll find a link and throw it into the show notes as well. I, I don't recommend it because I don't have it yet. Uh, but the idea is that it looks like a it's a Y shape, right? So you uh -huh. plug the single end into your monitor's USB-C port. And then there's two USB-Cs coming out the back end of it. One uh, one can go into each Mac and then there's like a physical switch Uh that, that you can use. Oh, cool. I need, I need this. <laughs> I, I am waiting with, I, I am going to wait with bated breath to hear, hear how it works for you because I'm, this is, you should see me juggling my machines on my desk over the course of a day. Yeah. It's, it's too much to deal with. Like, I don't mind doing it. So like, if you have like the Apple, like wireless keyboard and um, trackpad thing or mouse, 
The only way to make those switch is to physically plug them into a Mac. That is as far as I can go with this. I, I won't. I don't want to have like a bunch of cables I'm redoing every day. I really don't even like doing that with my trackpad and keyboard. But the the only alternative is to have two sets, and that's a step too far <laughs> nope. for me. I'm, I'm actually uh, not going to do that. So uh, this is fine. I have one Thunderbolt cable that sits on my desk, and you know, in the morning when I start work, I switch the inputs, and then if I need my home Mac for something, I switch them again. Not not the worst thing. The one that I got from Amazon is called the Ella Cable USB-C Switch Bi-Direction 2-in-1 Out or 1-in-2 Splitter 8K at 60 Hertz Video 10 gigabyte per second data transfer compatible with Thunderbolt device parentheses black. That's literally the name of this thing. Uh, I love so names again, on, don't, on all, <laughs> don't everybody run out and buy this thing until I can like say whether or not it's useful or not. It looks promising. It has three three point seven stars uh, for what that's worth. I don't ever know how much stock to put into. I know this kind of thing. I, I get so. Um, I mean, reviews are especially when it comes to tech is like. How far do you, you know, was it just a bad egg? Was it, did, did it not, uh, did the user not understand how to use it correctly? Are they, you know, getting compensated somehow for it? So I never know how to take the reviews, but um, this sounds, this, this, this sounds like something I need to, um, we were talking about gear acquisition syndrome earlier. Um, This sounds like something I do need to acquire. Turns out well, there's also a way. Thunderbolt is... KVM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is basically, you know, a 40, looks like a $44 solution to uh, not buying an extra monitor or <laughs> a replacement monitor. So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, the only part about it that I'm not super excited about is trying to think about the physical, physical aspect of, well, right. the USB-C port that I need to plug this thing into is in the back of my monitor, as it should be. And... Now there's a button back there that I'm going to have to interact with every day on this new dongle switch oh, thing. Yes. Uh, there is one that I ran, just ran across as I was searching. Um, uh, Sabrent has, has one, which I, which I might actually, this is my, this might be the one I grab. Um, it looks like it has a button that you can, um, that is separated from the actual KVM. And so you can put it wherever you want and click it instead. <laughs> I think I saw that one. Can you post a link to that in the show notes as well? Yes. I think like that's, it looks like one of those things that's like a, oh, wait, no, this is, this is the enclosure I was looking at. Sabrent apparently has been a going concern for me for a few weeks as I was thinking about storage enclosures as well. Uh, but yeah, I may have seen this one too. There, it's like that sort of. Oh, the one time continuity is failing me. It's not, it's not pasting over. Oh yeah, I was gonna say I I, I, cl- I thought I clicked your link and then I was like, wait, this is what I just posted because it is what I just <laughs> it, it is what you just posted. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, I think I saw that one and yeah, if you end up getting that, I, I'd be interested in comparing notes because I think that that one is a bit a little bit pricier, but um, for not having to reach back behind the monitor several times a day might be worth it. Yeah, um, but yeah, having it feels now. Of course, it could have a who knows how long it's actual. This is another cable and it will be visible on your desk. Um, so you're going to have to live with that. cable. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, and hopefully it's a long enough cable. But um, yeah, ha- it feels like having something there. But surely there's a system. Short- maybe there's a shortcut you can. I know like the ones where you had the keyboard wired up through a KVM switch. And this is from years ago before USB-C was ever a thing. But I remember there was usually a keyboard shortcut you could do that would trigger it. Um, if you're not using the keyboard through it, I don't know how that would work, but. Well, the ultimate solution for me is Apple creates a version two of its, uh, studio display that has a, a good camera in it. And like, I mean, again, like just given the price of it, I'm like on principle alone, I can't, I can't support that. So like, I, I need it. I need a thing that costs that much to be a all all around good product, and like the camera is like pretty big deal because we use those all day every day. Uh, so, anyways, like if they come out with a version two of that, I think, and I do not know, I would do the research on this before I uh, take the plunge. But uh, I know it has a bunch of USB C ports in the back of that one. I don't know if multiple can be used as like inputs from machines to run display on, or if it's just you know. Like, for example, like if you, if there's no buttons on that, like, how do you, how do you, how would you, how switch? do you switch? Yeah. So again, like that, that feels to me like kind of like baseline, this is a daily thing. So like, if I'm going to have a monitor, like if I'm going to get a new one, like that would be one of the purchasing criteria is like, it needs to have a proper switch. Uh, so I can, you know, do this thing that literally millions of us have to do all of the time in knowledge work worlds, which is switch, uh, you know, oh, inputs. Yes. yeah, which, yeah, I mean, because you want to properly split your machines and, and have your personal life on one work on the other and or you might have multiple machines like I have a Windows machine um, for the rare occasion when I have to d- drop into uh, Windows 10 because um, I refuse to I can't upgrade it to Windows 11 because it won't let me, um, but I don't really want to upgrade it to Windows 11. Um, and then I have my music Mac, um, that is totally separate, but sometimes you, it's a laptop, so I can take it over. And sometimes I might want to work on it with a bigger screen. So, um, having multiple import inputs is, is so important. Well, I have to say that this is the first episode we've done in a while that really covered a lot of territory. So we went, we covered we, all the tangents. We, yeah, well, this is, this is kind of fun though. I think, uh, sometimes we have the episodes where it's just like, here's the one thing we're going to talk about. And we covered this much time, but uh, instead today we kind of split it out into, uh, well, a couple of related things. So we got into the music ML uh, update and got to even hear a little audio from that, which was pretty fun. Uh, then we jumped into uh, going beyond OpenAI's APIs and into something like Hugging Face, for example. And uh, so a bunch of links people can check out there. Uh, ended up talking about uh, Macs and pr- particularly comparing, you know, say like an Intel i9 to a, an M, uh, M1 or an M2 Ultra and got into some Mac specs in a way that I don't think you and I have ever really sat down and talked hard no, about on, on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, in real life, we do all the time. Yes. Uh, so it's kind of cool to get a chance to do that. Uh, talked a little bit about g- cable KVMs. management because I just have to. And then we got into KVMs because of that. So uh, who uh, knows where we'll, we'll end up with. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some, somewhere in there, someone will find just a little bit of, of something useful. Uh, you know what? The hardware is all really fun, but I'd rather be scripting. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'd rather be scripting. 
If you love scripting, terminals, Z shell, JavaScript development, and other random technology tangents as much as we do, we'd love to hear from you. You can always leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can reach out to us via the social links on our website, idratherbescripting.com. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting.